This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. At some point, I'll figure out a better way to introduce this thing because it feels so hokey the way I do that. But this week's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. More about that in a little bit. And I want to apologize in advance for a certain sliver of our listeners who are not interested in think tank presidents. It just turned out that this week, uh, because of the vicissitudes of the calendar, that we did a podcast with uh, John Tillman of the Illinois Policy um, Center, or I still can't remember what it's supposed to be called, which was great, about Chicago. And then this week we have, which was long on the books, we have our guest today, who is not only a handsome man, but a powerful man. Uh, he is the incoming president of the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Robert Doerr. You, were, you have not officially... I don't uh, start till July 1st. Okay, so you've not been blooded. You haven't been in the... We are in transition mode. Okay. Arthur okay. and I are here together. Arthur Brooks and I are and, um, together for a while. Um, and among the many things we have in common as, as, as former New Yorkers is also the fact that um, we both do what our wives tell us to do. And in this case, we're both doing what your wife told us to do, which is that she's a fan of this podcast. She is. And she wanted you on. And while if you had asked to come on, I don't know if I would have agreed, but we all like your wife so much that we just figured. Sarah we... is a big fan of this podcast, as I was saying earlier. She's a particularly big fan of your of your friend Jack over here. Yeah, yeah. Well, she'll get, she'll get over that. Maybe she'll meet him someday and then yeah. be disabused. She's already met me. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well. So, and she's still a fan despite that. Oh, wow. And Jack says your wife, I mean, Jack says your wife's a fan of his as well. So he's got the, the wives in the cor in his corner. She does. She does. My wife recently made him a whole dish of chicken parmesan to reward him. So. Pretty nice. All right. So, uh, first of all, let's begin in the beginning. Who is Robert Doerr? If you look at your resume, you were not the obvious, the, your destiny was not obvious that you would end up the head of a conservative think tank. Um, and I tell people when they say, you mean the Bloomberg guy, <laughs> um, that he's actually more conservative than his CV might suggest. But how'd you end up here? Where'd you get your start? All that stuff. So I worked in social services policy in the Pataki administration for Governor George Pataki, uh, a Republican, maybe not as conservative as other Republicans, but uh, on my issues, welfare policy and work requirements and public and personal responsibility and the importance of family. Governor Pataki was strong uh -huh. uh, and a welfare reformer and Meyer Bloomberg was as well. Yeah, he was a strong believer in the 
things that I wanted to do, which was to help people get into jobs and off of public assistance. And he also was a big believer in fraud protections. And so I sometimes refer to myself as the in-house conservative in the Bloomberg administration, but I certainly was in a position he wanted me to be because mm -hmm. he knew that he was – he had other influences on him. But on this one, he wanted to be strong uh, proponent of welfare reform policies. Mm. Um, grew up in New York? Grew up in Brooklyn. My uh -huh. dad had moved to – Brooklyn in 1969 to work in an anti-poverty program in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And uh, so most of my uh, middle school years and high school years were in Brooklyn. And uh, and think of myself as a New Yorker, uh, although I'm, I'm not, you know, lifelong because we started out in Washington. Oh, that's right. Yeah, well, since you brought him up, uh, we might as well just cover it now because a lot of people don't know it. Your dad was sort of one of the great titans of the civil rights era. He was. He was a Republican from Wisconsin who had come to work for President Eisenhower in the last year of the Eisenhower administration. And then because he had begun some important work uh, in Tennessee and in Louisiana, uh, when the Kennedys came to town, they decided to keep him around. And he remained in the Justice Department eventually as the head of the Civil Rights Division until almost the end of the, of the Johnson administration and then when he went to Brooklyn to do this anti-poverty program. Which – by the end of the Johnson administration, it was a kind of busy time for the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. <laughs> well, it was a busy time from the whole period. My yeah. dad worked very hard. He spent 200 days of the year in the South. Uh, he was the – he started the first real voting rights cases. He was involved in efforts to keep the peace and avoid – help keep people from getting killed. He was the uh, guy who escorted James Meredith, right? Into Old Miss. And then he also was a prosecutor of important murder cases. He prosecuted the murder case of Viola Leunzo, who was mm -hmm. killed after the Montgomery March. And then he prosecuted the case involving the three boys who were killed in Neshoba County, Mississippi. So he um, he was a, you know, uh, he was a limited government Republican. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But he believed in making sure that uh, voting rights were uh, protected. And um, and he did a good job at that. Yeah. I mean, so this raises one of these things that is actually a big complaint of mine. Every now and then you'll hear it almost entirely as kind of a partisan talking point about how more Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act than Democrats. And I understand that people think that, oh, yeah, but all the racist Democrats then became Republicans and all that. And that's a contentious issue we don't need to get into. But the simple fact is, is that the Republican Party historically is the party of civil rights. Uh, just it's a f historical fact. It was Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first Republican re presidential candidate, but he was the first Republican president. He's basically the founder of the Republican Party in, in all but name. And if you go and you look at like John Boehner's district, I can't remember the name of the guy, but Boehner's the guy who the Republican who held the, the House seat in that in that district, district was a, a hero. Yeah, he was the guy who rallied, who whipped all the votes. Right, and it's a it's a frustrating thing now that it that that Republicans have either had it taken away from them or or just left it on the table. The idea that there is nothing inconsistent with Republican conservative philosophy in in believing in enforcing civil rights laws. I agree with that. I think Republicans have a great history in civil rights and my father's an example of that. And it's also – it's a more complicated issue. Um, sometimes people blur civil rights with uh, anti-poverty policy and right. I think that's a big mistake. And on that score, civil rights involved a certain effort that involved the law and the evocation of rights. Anti-poverty policy is often about other things besides just rights. It has to do with uh, personal responsibility, economic development, family. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more complicated. But I think in the public mind, sometimes those two get merged and they're not the same. The other thing is is that the 
the situation concerning voting is is con- some people confuse us. I'll give you an example, Jonah. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had many provisions in it, and it had one that was a little aggressive toward the South, and that was if you're ever going to change voting requirements of any kind, you had to come to the Civil Rights Division, an agency of the executive branch of the federal government, and ask for approval in advance. Right. It's called preclearance. Even in 1965, my father, who was really one of the authors of that bill and the leaders of that, of that effort, he was uncomfortable with that. But certainly 25, 30 years later, when voting patterns for African Americans are so much higher and uh, the the need for preclearance mm-hmm. seems to me uh, to be unnecessary. And that's what Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court ruled when right. they uh, eliminated that provision of the Voting Rights Act. Unfortunately, despite the fact that that's just one provision, some people like to say that's an example of gutting voting right. rights. And that's just not correct. Um, and there's going to be a big discussion about that in the coming years because it's part of the sort of uh, some people's talking points right. that uh, Republicans are against voting rights. And I don't think they're correct. Yeah. And I don't think uh, Justice Roberts' decision um, means that at all. Um, and I hope that here at AI, we can uh, promote writers and, and, and scholars who can make that Kind of complicated point, right. but an important point. Yeah. No, I, I remember when that decision came down, and you look at some of the districts, some of the areas that were subject to preclearance, and I was like, really? I think it was – I could be wrong about this, but I think it was New Hampshire. There were parts of New Hampshire. It just was a vestige of another time, and uh, Justice Roberts, I think, made the right call, and my dad felt the same way. Oh, really? That's interesting. So you raised this point, which I think is a good one, about how – civil rights and anti-poverty programs kind of get mushed together. And as someone who grew up in New York City and remembers people like the the non-MSNBC version of Al Sharpton, it seemed to me that there is – there was – how to put this? There's a – that you start getting sort of regulatory capture and the incentives – call them political incentives, marketing incentives, financial incentives – to blur those lines because what, what it really was was an overlaying of modern civil rights rhetoric on old Tammany-style sort of graft and, and, uh, and machine politics. Is that fair? Well, I definitely think the rhetoric of um, the modern time on some of these issues is, is out, of, out of touch with the reality. And there are certainly – People like um, Al Sharpton who will take advantage of an older kind of rhetoric, an older kind of expectation that if you just cry foul and point at the the man, uh, everyone will come behind you and agree with you. And um, some – The media helps with that. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. The media helps with it because it it, it perpetuates a storyline. Right. And I think that's unfortunate and I think that's what's led to people – uh, uh, not being comfortable with that. And um, so, you know, I was in New York when Mayor Giuliani was first elected. I worked with him and his administration when I was working for Governor Pataki. It's kind of remarkable for old New Yorkers like us to have seen sort of 20 years of people being elected on the Republican line right. for the mayor of New York City. Right. Um, and uh, I think that was a result of a reaction against um, a kind of rights-based racial grievance that um, is not helpful. And not only not helpful to our society at large, but I think it's not been helpful to people we're trying to help. 
All right. So on that front, what did you actually do? Because um, I know it r- raised the ire of some of these people when you were working um, for Bloomberg and presumably Pataki as well. Uh, yeah. So we were there when the when the sort of welfare reform movement was at its peak uh, and really kicking off. And and so we brought a work requirement to public assistance, especially cash welfare. And so in 1995, there were about a million men, women, and children in New York City alone on cash assistance that right. they were getting a cash check. And by instituting an re- expectation that they they do something, that they participate in activity or go get a job, we that led to a lot of people going and getting a job. And their incomes rose and they were also able to get certain work supports that made their income even higher than what the wages would pay. But they were no longer on cash assistance or cash dependency. And so by the time we left, at the end of the Bloomberg administration, we were down to 350000 So I'm proud of that and I'm particularly proud that that happened at the same time that child poverty steadily declined mm. all through the periods. I mean I grew up in a time in the 70s and 80s when – Child poverty is going higher right. and, and stubbornly high and, and Charles Murray's uh, phrase is perfectly accurate. We were losing ground. Right. I believe that we gained ground in the fight against child poverty in the period after 1995 due in part to Bill Clinton and others. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we did was we instituted work expectation, work requirements in cash assistance um, and then we – increased the amount of assistance we would provide to low-wage workers, especially workers who had children in the household, so that we made work pay more mm-hmm. and made it more attractive. And that Sort of like an EITC. Like an EITC, yeah. we public health insurance. We did other things. So I, you know, I'm sometimes when I'm with conservative audiences, I like to emphasize that the strong anti-dependency reduction in cash assistance but it's also true that I increased assistance and other forms of assistance that went to working people, and I make no apologies about that. Yeah, no, I mean I, I always remember because I was I was here at AEI back then working for Ben Wattenberg, who was quite obsessed with welfare reform, and um, I remember Tommy Thompson was one of the first leaders in all of that, and it was a really remarkable conceptual change. This idea that it may actually cost more money up front, but you're going to change patterns of behavior, you're going to change cultural norms and expectations, and that will pay off more in the long run. And I always found that a very compelling argument is that, you know, do you want to monetize the problem so we just have a, a entrenched bureaucracy and activist groups who make money off the problem? Or do you actually want to fix the problem? Right. And I also should say that we're we're helping people get up to the first rung or second rung on the economic ladder. And we're recognizing that beyond that, there's a lot of factors at play. But the other alternative is to say, we're not going to help you get a start. We're not going to get you into work. We'll just pay you off. Right. And I think um, that leads to kinds of dysfunction that are not good for communities or families or children. And also, I just think people uh, flourish more when they're engaged in some activity. But I want to be clear, we didn't promise them and we didn't deliver them safely into the middle class. Sure. And that's, I think, a promise we we, we shouldn't make. There's, mm-hmm. There are limitations to what government policy can do. But I think what we have now is better than we had in the 70s and 80s. And certainly in places like New York City, um, it's a lot stronger. I mean, you know, if you go back and look at the history, and young people don't know that, but in the past, the cities were dying. And, yeah. you know, it was the cover of Time magazine, the death of NYC, and you know, the Bronx is burning, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, all of that I remember because I was there when – a beam almost took us into bankruptcy. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell a story. Um, <laughs> uh, you know my friend Vin Canato? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, so Vin, who I first met as a young policy gnome here at AEI, he had briefly worked for Doug Beshroff here and then went over to the public interest. He um, he wrote this, his PhD thesis was on the Lindsay administration, sort of the high watermark of America. The Ungovernable City. Yeah. It's one of the great books about public policy ever written. Yeah, no, it's a great book, and I'm a huge fan of Vin's. But the Lindsay administration had has an enormous number of very high-profile veterans of it, right? And they're sort of like this happy few who defend it. And the theory that you get from the Lindsay that was thrown up at Vin all the time was that New York City was going perfectly until Lindsay left office and then it all went to hell, which is nonsense. And but so like Vin would go and speak at like the 83rd Street, Barnes and Noble and, and all of these like old Lindsay retreads would show up and heckle him and yell at him and all this kind of stuff. And I always remember he was tell he would tell me how uh, one of the chief arguments they would make in favor of Lindsay, how brilliant he was, was how he brought Hollywood back to New York. Because in the 1950s, there were all these wonderful sort of like Rock Hudson movies, you know, and everything's so clean. Everyone's wearing hats and it's great. <clears throat> and then Hollywood leaves New York and Lindsay started this program, which you now see all over the place, of basically subsidizing Hollywood to film on location. And Vince says, that's right. He gets credit for that. He deserves that. Now go look at the movies that were made under that program. And it's Taxi Driver, uh, the, the French Connection. French Connection is one of the great ones. Death yep. Wish. Yep, yep. And um, Panic in Needle Park. <laughs> well, French Connection, the opening scenes take place at the end of Columbia Heights in, in, overlooking the, the harbor in Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. It was all harbor. Go there now. It's all one of the most fascinating and terrific parks to be built in the world in yeah. the last 25 years. Um, so, yeah, the city is a different place. Because um, I always – every now and then I'll see that one of those movies is on and I'll watch it and I'm like, oh, my God. That, that's right. That's what my childhood look, look, looked like. You know, I mean it was just – it was bleak. I remember when um, I was still dating uh, the fair Jessica, my wife, and she has insomnia sometimes and she stayed up and she was watching Panic in Needle Park, which is a true story based on a true story about – there were like three days in Man in New York where the heroin supply dried up and – causing panic in Needle Park. And Needle Park, she was like, right. tell me about this movie. Yeah. And I said, you know, that's 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 where I change buses to go to high school every morning. <laughs> you know? It was a I mean, he was a man of good intentions and but the ungovernable city was when I first joined the Bloomberg administration, one of the top people said, you know, we we recommend that people who join us read this so that yeah. you can get a sense of how things can cannot work out quite the way you planned them. So speaking of liberal New York City mayors who don't necessarily live up to the platonic ideal that they set for themselves. Uh, we are recording this on the day that, in an answer to a question no one appears to have been asking, uh, Bill de Blasio has decided he's going to throw his hat into the ring and run for president. Um, how are you doing containing your excitement? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm just fine. Did you have uh, much run-in with him in your day? I did. Uh, when he was a city council member, he was the chair of the committee that I reported to as commissioner of the largest social services agency. Um, he's a Brooklynite. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. He's, you know, when he ran for mayor, he, you know, was sort of at the bottom of the pack. And yeah. So he he may feel he can strike lightning twice. Uh and I and I think uh, I'm disappointed in the way the city has fared in his uh, service in, in the mayor's office, and so I don't quite get what his 
advertisement is to the rest of the country. Uh, but you know, he's a capable politician. At least he, he when he's, won two terms when, when he's, he's running in New York and when he's awake, right? Because yeah. he, he likes to sleep late. Um, um, the well, I think his message. I watch for purely out of professional due diligence obligations. I watched his campaign video, and have you seen it? No, I have not. Okay, so. Uh, is the president of the American Enterprise and st- uh, fourth com- president me. elect? President, president elect, elect, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, his opening slogan is: he says straight to the camera. There's plenty of money in the world. There's plenty of money in America. It's just in the wrong hands, and that is Huey Long garbage. That is being passed off as if it's like some sort of you know, it's what de Tocqueville would call a clear but false idea <laughs> um, and uh, I like I, I think this is probably the first and last time we'll be talking about Bill de Blasio on this podcast and I'm going to write a column which will be probably the first and last column about Bill de Blasio because I don't think he's going to go anywhere um, if you look at his poll numbers in New York City the idea that a guy who the only presidential contender that he is l- more popular than is Donald Trump in New York, <laughs> um, but the idea that he's going to win over a bunch of South Carolinians and, and Iowans just strikes me as implausible. But um, that idea of you know the the problem with capitalism is that it gives money to capitalists, and that that we would be so much better off if we just took it away from them, the undeserving rich, and spread it around more. That idea is, is remarkably popular within the Democratic Party these days, and it's. If there is, you know, AI has a few discrete missions, but if 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 that if fighting that idea isn't one of them, I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. That is, you know, this sort of emerging, you know, affection for socialism is a major challenge. It's one of the things I want to make sure AI hits out of the ballpark strongly. It's in our, you know, it's in our strong space, right. and um, that's something we got to focus on. It's a real risk for our country. With regard to Mayor de Blasio, to me, it's just look at the, the quality of life in the city, the schools, mm-hmm. the uh, homeless population has grown. The subways are 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 not as strong as they used to be, and um, I don't see how you take that record and run for president. Yeah, well, when you're term limited and you think that it was due to the strength of your ideas and personality that got you elected and reelected, rather than a very weird, quirky set of circumstances on the ground, you know, there's there's that thing in economic, the winner's bias, you know, uh, I mean, it's sort of like Donald Trump to a certain extent. Donald Trump behaved a certain way all of his life and he kept getting richer and more famous and more successful. So he thought, ah, see, it works. And you can't really argue with him because it did work for him. But if most, you say so, you say so. so far. Yeah. Yeah. Most people who, uh, the, the person who wins the lottery can say, see, I was right. But um, that doesn't mean buying lottery tickets is, is necessarily a great idea. But on, on this idea, so you recently wrote a piece in The Guardian? The Guardian, yeah. I was yeah. asked to submit a bunch of other people were asked as well, and I came to the defense of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you make your case about how rumors of capitalism's demise are greatly exaggerated? Well, I, I uh, to me, it looks – to what I'm particularly impressed by recently is that um, – the strength of the American economy now, along with a few other things that are going well, means that the people that I spent my life working for and working on issues concerning, that is the poor, are 
stronger than they've been at any time during the Obama administration. The, the, the strength of the economy, child poverty will reach an historic low, no matter how you measure it. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of ways to measure it. Any way you choose, the United States child poverty rate will be the lowest it's ever been. Um, and that includes and especially for Hispanics and African Americans. And it shows you the force of what a growing, prosperous employer community can do to raise incomes for people that are um, uh, want to work and can work and actually stretch to bring people into work who need a little mm-hmm. uh, assistance in doing that. And so I just think that record is very positive and very strong and why you would turn on employers mm-hmm. and turn on um, income producers and value producers makes no sense to me. Um, and uh, so that's my main case. And um, I do think Michael Strain of AEI has written a great piece recently about how wage stagnation statistics can be manipulated in a way that makes them look uh, um, not as strong or worse than they really are. And that um, – so we're not perfect. It doesn't work all the time for every person. But I also happen to think that it gives the greatest chance for the most people to move up economically. And the record – now, that's – I've just talked about the record in the United States. In the world, I mean the greatest force for reducing you know, deep poverty in the world has been free markets. Right. And that's happened in China and India and, and um, that's clear too. So I – um, I think it's a it's an argument I will make, but more importantly, lots of people at AI will make, and other people in the country will make. But it will be a great debate, mm-hmm. and it's not a sure thing that will completely carry the day. But if we focus on it and work hard at it, I think we will. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer. Was it T. S. Eliot says there's no such thing as a truly lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly won cause. The argument in favor, the arguments for socialism aren't quite as old as America, but they're pretty close. And um, every generation we get, whether it's sort of Atari Democrat, technocratic liberals who are arguing that we know how to manage the economy better, better, or whether it's Norman Thomas or Eugene V. Debs, there is some, I'm, uh, I'm a believer that it's, there's something hardwired in us that gives us a sweet tooth for things like socialism or nationalism. And so the idea that we'll ever truly vanquish that the forces of liberty and free markets will ever truly win the fight is fanciful. The point is is that it's an eternal fight and yeah. every generation has got to have it. And all you can do is keep it going, is pass the tools and the arguments on to the next generation so that they can keep that fight going too. And that's that's good enough. I was worried coming on that I was going to face all sorts of references to Star Trek and – other kinds of popular culture things. And, we can go that and, way. And now you're doing T.S. Eliot. I'm much more comfortable with T.S. Eliot, but even there, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into a, a contest because it's, uh, it's unwinnable with you. There's, there's, no, there's no contest. No contest. <laughs> um, just to flash back for a second, though, to um, the reduction of child poverty and, and welfare rules and all Increased that. Increased work rates, yep. So you're talking about, and I agree with you entirely, that a growing economy does enormously useful things to make work more attractive than being on the dole or whatever you want to call it. But since you were working for Bloomberg and Bloomberg is sort of famously fond of numbers and metrics and data and all that kind of stuff, how just methodologically, how, how do we sort of policy wonks like you figure out how to disaggregate the success of the policies about work requirements and all of the rest 
versus just the general effects of a growing economy like you had in the 1990s? Very difficult to do. And if you act like you think you can do that, uh, I think you're overstating the case. Um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work with evidence-based policy and randomized control experiments and things like that. But my tendency is to look at a combination of forces that if they all are working on the right path can lead to an aggregate change in statistics that I pay attention to. So labor force participation among never married mothers is a number we watch carefully. It went from 43 to 63% in the period that we're talking about. That's something's good is going on there. The right. economy is playing a role. Work expectations and welfare are playing a role. Uh, Work supports for people that do go to work are playing a role, and for people that want to say it was, it was all this and none of that. I think they're they're overstating their case. You need all of it together. Public messaging matters too. Bill Clinton saying we're going to end welfare as we know it. Michael Bloomberg saying there's no such thing as a dead end job. All jobs are are, right. are a start. Um, that plays a role as well. So I, I try to avoid. Um, isolating or claiming victory for one thing over all the others. But I also am very clear about giving credit to all of the forces that played a role. So the other one I watch is deep poverty or food insecurity to see if there are people who maybe aren't getting the benefit of employment and are getting worse off and looked at that fairly. Um, it either stayed flat or dropped a little. So I'm very comfortable with the the aggregate statistics that my, that are that are used, uh, especially when they're supplemented. Often they're survey data. Bruce Meyer, another AI scholar, who's University of Chicago, has shown that if you use administrative data to supplement survey data, you can get a better picture of what's really going on in households in terms of their resources. So we see that households have more resources than they might remember on a survey because we link the survey data to the admin data and see that they have SNAP and they're, they're actually a recipient of public health insurance. So that's a complicated way of answering, Jonah, that I try not to get too into the weeds and try to say it was only this one thing. Mm-hmm. If the if the if the overriding um, messages are 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 together, work matters. Work is expected, uh, and if you go to work, will also allow you to retain some form of assistance to make work pay to make your wages go further. And then you look at the global data. You wake up and say things are better. Something's working here, and let's stick with it. Um, there's a famous article in the New York Times in the wake of welfare reform that looked at one square block in 127th Street uh, in Harlem. And it looked at how the neighborhood changed mm-hmm. because more people were getting up in the morning and going to work. Mm-hmm. And that created a, a quality of life and a discipline and a, and, a, and a community aspect that made the community stronger. And the incomes went up as well. So I, I, I'm careful to try to be too – definitive about one thing and not the other, but the three of them combined, strong economy, work expectations and public policy, and work supports all combined. So not not that I can imagine you would strongly disagree with it, but it seems to me that there's a fourth element, which is sort of in the your point about messaging and expectations and all of the rest, but culture matters an enormous amount, right? Um, you know, we had Tom Sowell on here a few episodes back, and he was making the point that the black poverty rate for um, married families or black poverty rate for people who had 
um, library cards back when library cards were a thing or people who had sub- black families that had subscriptions to newspapers were higher that were lower than or often lower or no different than white poverty rates. Well, he's absolutely right. Culture matters a lot and the extent to which people are raised in two-parent families, usually in, in marriage, is a big indicator of whether they will have upward mobility. There's truth to that. But the world I come from has to deal with the city as it, as is. it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there are still 40 percent of births in the United States are in unmarried families. And the, But I will say one other thing about that is the message in welfare reform wasn't so much that people in my job took each of these people by their hands and got them a job and right. you know did it for them. The people get jobs or the people get jobs. Mm-hmm. And what happened was when they got the message, this is what we expect. They said, oh, we can do that. Right. So I don't know what the culture was in those households, but it was more actually receptive of a work-based emphasis than the left – and like, maybe the right yeah. ever thought. Yeah. And we learned that – and this was a classic example of something Arthur Brooks often says, is people have assets. They are assets. They're not liabilities. And I think the true heroes of what we've just been talking about are the individuals who, when given a certain message and expectation, responded by going to work and raising incomes for their families. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, in a an economy like this where employment is really going gangbusters, one of the really important lessons is that it's really hard to find truly qualified job applicants, and that's why people should try ZipRecruiter. This is actually was one of the more uh uh accurate segues that we've had um for our ZipRecruiter ads in the sense that a booming economy uh does actually make hiring people all the more difficult. And as someone who's actually looking into hiring people these days, I can attest to that. The papers are full every day with um, stories about how um, job seekers have more leverage to find the job that they want than they've ever had before, which puts real strain on employers. And that's why ZipRecruiter is such an unbelievably useful resource. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As, applica- as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Um... All right, so we touched on it briefly a minute ago with the de Blasio's call for seizing the means of the production or whatever it was he said. And I, I will admit this is a bit of a parochial interest of mine because um, I work here and because – We are very grateful. <laughs> um, uh, what what are your grand plans for this august institution in the wake of Arthur yeah, – you, I think you'll be among the first to admit Arthur Brooks is a hard act to follow. Very hard and he, he sets a tone and aspirational 
rhetoric and eloquence that I won't even try to match. Much like a sartorial standard. You exactly. Just don't even try. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> but I, I think that I'm a little more closer to the ground. I'm focused on public policy outcomes. I'm very interested in moving our country positively and that sometimes happens through things that Congress does or things the executive branches does or something the governors do. Um, so I think I'll be a little more focused on specific policy outcomes um, and impact. Uh, I also am a very big believer in, as was Arthur, but I think I may will maybe emphasize this a little more, in celebrating the work of the collection of scholars that mm -hmm. we have here. We have a lot of great people and I want to recruit a few more. And, you should um, try a zip recruiter. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, I, maybe I'll look into that. Uh, <laughs> The uh, so I I'm uh, uh, focused on on you know Michael Strain and Sally Sattel and, mm -hmm. and various other scholars and making sure their work is fully promoted and, and popular understood. guests on this very this vital podcast. Uh, that's right. Um, and Jonah Goldberg, yeah. uh, by the way. And uh, so there'll be a little bit of difference there. Uh, but AI is a great place and it does great it's work. And um, we have principles concerning free markets, free people, limited government, a strong America role in the world. That's not going to change. And I just have to uh, make sure we don't miss a beat. My, the reason I raised my hand and said, uh, you know, I'm interested in this was because I like AI so much. I'd had these great five years and I was afraid we were going to pause at a particularly crucial time. And I thought if – because I'm here, because I think I understand the culture of the place, uh, I thought I could make sure that we kept moving forward aggressively. Now, we are going to be recruiting in some, I think, really wonderful public intellectuals and getting them to do their work. I'm a, I'm not um, – you know, there's an old line at AI is AI's position is that it doesn't have a position. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to watch and enjoy the conversation. As you know, uh, Jonah, there are some tensions in the right of center world I've right now. I've noticed a few, yeah. Yeah, and I want to make sure we're a place where those tensions can get worked out and and find a sort of appropriate balancing ground between uh -huh. certain issues. And certainly President Trump has you know upset the apple cart in some regards. I mean on our role in the world, President Trump has a different view on immigration, on free trade, on entitlements. Uh, the kind of traditional Republican expectation that their base supported their approach on those four issues, we learned maybe not wasn't maybe wasn't true. Right. And so I think AI can be a very good uh, convener of of those discussions, so that we find, um, you know, where we can go from here. So a couple thoughts. One, I know you said you don't want any pop culture references, but. When I hear you saying you want to change the focus on results, measurable results and whatnot, I feel a little bit like Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters saying how I can't leave academia. I can't go to the private sector. They expect results. Um, I don't know how much influence I can have on public policy. I just want to be clear about that. Well, I, I get that and I know there's that concern, but um, I didn't come from academia. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I, I do want to I, – I, I will like – I think it's a good thing. When we have examples of work that's done at AI that leads to legislation, that leads to the passage of legislation and that then leads to positive outcomes in America, you know, broken windows mm -hmm. led to real serious changes in policing that changed New York City and changed cities across right. America. 
That's a good thing. For listeners who don't know, uh, Broken Windows, which until James Q. Wilson came along, was more of a res- reference to Bastiat than to uh, James Q. Wilson. But James Q. Wilson and his partner, George Keller, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they put forward this thesis that um, small quality of life problems created an environment that led to greater problems. And so the example was if you live in a neighborhood where there are broken windows, that communicates to people that life is disordered, life is chaotic, that you can get away with anything. Kids can just throw rocks at windows. And if you police those little things, um, it drives the larger culture towards a more healthy set of expectations. The great example of this, which the Giuliani administration you know, embraced, um, was turnstile jumping. Yep, I was going to mention that. Yeah, and like when I was a kid, people I jumped turnstiles. I, not often, because if my father found out, he would kill me. But um, uh, but turnstile jumping was a huge thing. It was sort of considered, considered you were a sucker if you actually put a token in among a certain set of teenagers out there. And it turned out though that that if you police that, you um, first of all, a lot of the people who are most inclined to turnstile jump every single time might have committed other crimes, and you could find out if you apprehended them for that. But there was also just the general sense of chaos. Same thing with the graffiti on the subway cars. It was the sense that the city's just not in control of its own resources. And and, and standards don't matter. I mean, it brings right. down the rest of us. You feel as if, well, no one cares. No one no one's interested in, in participating positively in this community. And that makes us all less effective as citizens and as family members. And so, yeah, I'm a big believer in you need to address the little things uh, before they become big things. So, so it's funny um, as an amateur student of think tank lore because I'm so cool. Um, one of the reasons why the Heritage Foundation was founded, and you know, we will not speak ill of any of our brother think tanks, but um, or sister think tanks or sibling think tanks. But so Ed Fulner and I can never remember the other guy. I believe they were lobbyists on the Hill, and they were fighting this effort to kill a weapons program it was like some long haul supersonic refueling thing and they were fighting tooth and nail and to do it and it was a good sort of cold war conservative policy thing that they were doing and the vote was like on a tuesday and on thursday what lands on their desk is this brilliant monograph by ai explaining why we had to keep this program (laughs) and so the heritage foundation was passed was created in part to really be it's a a good story that makes ai look bad it does make AI. that's awfully nice of you to do that uh, uh, jonah i i'm besmirching (laughs) the legacy of bill baruti (laughs) well well, no but all i'm saying is i'm familiar with that story and it's no longer true gosh darn it yeah but but that's my point but there is this what i'm getting at though is there is this tension between and I don't think it's a contradiction. I just think it's a tension, and sometimes it's a healthy tension between doing the sort of serious fundamental research, analysis, argumentation, whatever you want to call it, and political relevance. And yes. there, uh, there are trade-offs there, and there are things to worry about there. And AI, I think, in the last 10, 15 years has done really well at straddling both. We have more people testify on Capitol Hill than anybody else. We have more op-eds in the top paper. I think it's a short-term, long-term thing too. If we get all caught up in making sure that Jonah Goldberg or someone is responding to the latest uh, outrage, then we'll lose our eye on a bigger, more fundamental work that needs to get done. And so I I would want – while I am interested in impact and I'm interested in in helping to guide the country in a better direction – 
I won't I don't think it's a good idea for us to get caught up into the daily news beat right. and worried about, you know, what's happening tomorrow on, on the Hill or in the newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, and I want our scholars to be protected from feeling that pressure. Because right. if, you're, if you're doing that all the time, it's very hard to really do deep research and come out with something outstanding. So I, I'm a, you know, a lot of wonderful work takes a long time. And then when it comes out, it, it, uh, it then can have its impact. And I want to protect scholars from those pressures. Yeah, so Chris DeMuth used to tell a great story about how when he was, I believe, in college, he was taking an economics class, and Chris DeMuth, who was the president prior to Arthur Brooks, um, you know, the, 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 the third head on the soon-to-be think tank Rushmore that I have Robert Doerr on it. a long way from and, uh, um And it was one of these classic examples of the professor trying to show balance. And so there, were, there was a signed reading, and there was the thing that you were supposed to think was really smart and persuasive that the professor agreed with. And then this crazy other thing that conservatives believe. And Chris read the crazy thing that conservatives are supposed to believe. I think it might've actually been by Tom Sowell. And he was like, I find this utterly persuasive. And it was one of the things that started him on this path. And one of the things I always loved about Chris was that he, I think the phrase he used to use was, you know, uh, when we did a lot more in-house publishing is I'm, I'm interested in the long ball, right? Yeah, you know, right, um, right. you want, you want to seed the intellectual soil with stuff that stands the test of time, that takes roots and all of the rest. And it doesn't mean the way other think tanks do things is wrong. And it doesn't mean that we can't be relevant in, in pressing concerns of the day, but you can't lose sight of that other function. I'm spending a lot of time uh, paying attention to Chris and to Arthur. And I think they both did really outstanding work in making AI what it is. And um, uh, they both had great qualities and it makes my future kind of intimidating, frankly. But um, I think if I listen and learn from them uh, and listen and learn to you and other scholars at AI, um, we'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the really, I mean, the one I think sort of indisputably crucial thing is that um, I'm better compensated. <laughs> but, but beyond that, you know, everything else will work out. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, that wherever I go. Uh, um, but you have nothing that you can announce at this point. There's no like hire or anything that you. I'm not supposed to announce anything, although there's, there's lots of uh, good good rumors around. Yeah, I know some of them. I just happen. I didn't I didn't know what was official, what's not official. I, so I, I won't yeah, I won't spoil. We're, we're doing good things. Yeah. Um, and so where else can we go here? Um, so glad I avoided any popular culture references. I, I was going to tell you the only thing I can talk about is Seinfeld. That's the one I could, you know, the key to Seinfeld, you know, is Elaine. Okay, hit me with your theory about this. <laughs> oh, the, the rest of them are all very funny, but Elaine makes the show go. Um, Maybe that's just a general statement that I've yeah, come to believe. And I, I think that's, that's, that's generally right. Um, I mean, the title character is an important character. <laughs> yes, he's okay, but if without Elaine, he's... Um, I will just do um, a little Maybe New York we'll... canna, okay? Because <laughs> I, it's risky because I can't compete at the same level as Jonah. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that that's true. Okay, so um, when you lived in Manhattan, where did you live? I never lived in Manhattan. So you always lived in Brooklyn. Always lived in Brooklyn. See, now this is a problem because maybe we just will end it there because <laughs> yes. like, Brooklyn is, an, is a completely different country to me. Yeah, well, that's troubling. Very troubling for me. Um, I mean, Manhattan is, is, a, is a movie set. 
Particularly uh, today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Today. yeah. Um, so that raises just one. Okay. So um, I was one of these guys when I first came to Washington in my in my 20s. Uh, Washington is full of these people who are incredibly obnoxious. And they're like, yeah, I'm here in Washington for a little while, but I'm going home one day because this isn't a real city, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of aged. I still have a lot of nostalgia for New York, and I go there a lot. My mom's still out there. but And I hated the left-wingers at, like, The Nation who were nostalgic for – Oh, they're the, I know you know, the warriors and Times Square. Street. Why can't it be like it used to be? Why can't the hookers carry around <laughs> yeah. sharpened toothbrushes yes. with razor blades and all this Times stuff? has a little of that. It's terrible. And uh, so I hated all of that. At the same time, and not to impugn the glories of capitalism, but I find New York so much less – Manhattan – so much less charming – than I did, and there was something about the sweet spot of the early of the late Giuliani, early Bloomberg thing, where crime was going down, the city was getting safer, but there were still a lot of mom and pop retail. There was a lot of unique charm. To Old places. New York, and yeah. the people that had grown lived there and grown up there, and businesses that were there. My first job when I got out of college was I worked in the Koch administration, helping manufacturers that were in Manhattan below 125th Street wow. who were being forced out by rent to find spaces. Like garment industry stuff? Uh, printers mostly. Uh-huh. And they needed to find spaces in Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens. We had a government program that actually provided relocation assistance. Uh-huh. And it allowed me to really get to know the whole five boroughs. And I, I became a, a, a believer, and even more so today, that the real New York is not in Manhattan. Well, I think that's true. It's certainly true that Little Italy in Manhattan is basically an Epcot Center. <laughs> yes, Little Italy in Manhattan <laughs> is a block-long movie set. Yeah, and um, but the one in, out by Fordham is still Arthur Avenue. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's suffering, but it's fun. Or Spumani Gardens in Brooklyn. I mean, that's that's. The neighborhood still exists. Yeah. Um, and I will say one thing about New York that's not well understood in, in comparison to, say, Chicago. New York really is a city of small neighborhoods yeah. and that blend together. And so there's no one big high-density concentration. And that's actually made it easier for us to um, address things like economic development in poor communities because neighborhoods blend together. And a lot of people push back on gentrification and all that. But it turns out that that households and people that live in neighborhoods uh, that are more economically diverse do better mm-hmm. and especially poor families. And so New York's had that advantage. And the other thing that is not as easy understood if you only spend time in Manhattan below 125th Street is the enormous impact of the immigrant population into the city. Yeah. All over the city, Russians, Chinese, Hispanics have taken uh, root in neighborhoods and made those neighborhoods uh, stronger and more lively. And so the city's a much different place than the 1970s for lots of reasons. Sure. And one of them is is that neighborhoods have really been able to blossom. And uh, there aren't many – well, I, I, wanna be, I don't want to be too hard on Manhattan because I still love New York and I, I spent a lot of time in Manhattan. But the real – great charm of communities in New York City is, is outside of is outside of No, I think that's right. I mean, my neighborhood on the Upper West Side was much... And I should point out that in getting back to Seinfeld, it's only when George goes and sees his parents in Queens when the show really takes off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually as, as, as you know, you I was about to talk about the glories of the... the f- Florida episodes, Del Boca Vista West, and all of that kind of stuff. But, oh yes, which I think are very strong, and everyone suspects that 
uh, Jerry's dad is taking bribes as president of the condo association because he's so lavish with his money that he agrees to go to dinner after 6 p.m. instead of taking advantage of the early bird special. But um, the underlying, which made my brain go off in a different way, is that the myth that George Costanza is an Italian character. Oh, is <laughs> I never, ever, ever thought he was an Italian character. Yeah, no, but but like they 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 couldn't they just couldn't make it all Jewy. <laughs> but I mean, Elaine is Jewish, you know, in in affect. And uh, I know this makes you a nice wasp uncomfortable, well, but I I just it's it's part of the New York I love. Yeah. So you know you know it's sort of uh, the old joke is how do you. Uh, how do you make an Episcopalian look at his shoes? Talk about money. Um, talk, talk about Jews too makes makes them very uncomfortable as well. But um, I'm a Catholic, by the way. Are you Catholic? Yeah. Okay, I should have known that, but it's all right. You have a you have a you have a sort of mainline wasp. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. But I that's why I wanted to make sure you knew that I was. Okay. Well, my my whole life, I am surrounded by papists. Um, you know, Jack is, I'm convinced, is actually a secret member of the Knights of Knights Templar or something like that. And <laughs> National Review is an ostensibly Catholic magazine. And I even married a Catholic, so I have no no hard ill will towards towards what do we started the slur that we like is um mackerel snappers, right? That was apparently an old epithet against Catholics. Yeah, they they don't they're not actually Christian. They just they worship the Pope or whatever. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Pope in Rome. You always have to say the Pope in Rome. Yeah, and using his secret tunnel to uh, tr- commune with uh, with what's the 1924 presidential candidate, Alfred Smith. Al Smith. First Catholic. Yeah. Pr- candidate failed because of that, because of those tunnel rumors. Um, 24 or 28, Jack? Yeah, I think it's 28. I think it's 28. And then again, he ran again in, in no? He didn't run in the 30s? So FDR was the vice presidential candidate f- for someone. In 20. In 20, yeah. Oh, in 20. I'm pretty sure. And then... And then he got sick. Uh-huh. And then Smith got him to run for governor in 28, and Smith got defeated by Hoover. Right. And FDR won in New York. Okay, but... As governor. He may have run both years. Yeah, maybe. All right, well... We should we should have to do a little we'll, checking on. We'll it. get it. Well, you know, this is the kind of thing AI has the resources to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Robert just silently mouthed the words "I'm right" <laughs> to me. Um, I, I so think no. I think I am. I don't okay. Know. Well, we'll clean up this hot mess at the end yes. here anyway. And Robert, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for coming on, and uh, God bless uh, with the responsibilities that you've bizarrely taken upon yourself. Um, we all wish you the best, and um, I just cannot wait for a more generous paycheck. So. <laughs> God bless you too, John. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. All right, so uh, Robert Doerr has left the studio. I can't say he's left the building because he works here. What did you think of all that? Careful. You know, he, he can crush you like a bug now. He did. I mean, I was wrong about the 24 election. Well, there you go. It was a guy named John Davis who was the Democratic nominee. I've never... That makes sense because that was the Klanbeck, uh Democratic convention, right? From... Well, why would that make sense? Well, I just remember the name Davis is like... Uh, is that the same one as McAdoo was the vice presidential candidate? Um, no. Running mate is Charles W. Bryan. Okay, and then I'm thinking, ah, I can't even remember anymore. 
just my brain is not working. <laughs> um, but yeah, Alfred E. Smith was 28, not 24. Yeah. Oh well, so I guess I've been humbled by the by the incoming leader. I'm um, less likely to launch a coup now, or more likely. I don't know. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's sometimes you know it's it's good to give incredibly powerful men um, a little victory every now and then. So you know it'll be all right. Okay. Um, Long game. That's right. Um, uh, so it is weird that we ended up doing two think tank. Essentially, two think tank presidents or near presidents in the same week. Even weirder is that their respective the places that they know best are Chicago and New York. So they're like, we we I don't know if there's an equivalent figure for Los Angeles. That's what we would have needed <laughs> to round things out. Yeah, I don't. Know. Who would that be? I have no idea. There certainly probably is in Dallas because there's some really good state based think tanks. Out yeah. There. Um. But, uh, Maybe David Bonson. He's not a think tank president, but he's from California. He, he's on the Radio Free California. Yeah, right? no, he would be good. He would be good. We got to get Bonson back on here at some point because, you know, uh, the audience is de- you know second only to their demands for Bigfoot erotica is their demands to hear he and I talk about premillenarianism. Yes, uh, which I'm not going to try and say again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they enjoy hearing you talk about it when you get the chance to pronounce it correctly, especially. Uh, so we have some uh, exciting podcasts coming up, exciting episodes, exciting changes, um, all sorts of exciting changes. Um, but we can talk about those another time. Um, we are going to do – I'm going to do a – for those interested in this sort of thing, we're going to have a giant final wrap-up of the entire run of Game of Thrones episode of Glop Culture with John Podoritz and I and – one or two special guests since Rob Long claims not to be watching the show anymore and refuses to talk about it. And then, you know, starting in June, the changes, they come, they're going to come in a mad rush, but we don't need to talk about that right now. Um, is there anything that we need to announce? Anything that we need to talk about? Um, not really. Jack is just staring blankly into space with his macabre. Actually, I'm staring into time. Macabre. I'm, I'm using, <laughs> using the time stone to probe <laughs> alternate futures. Um, all right. So with that then, because uh, we do have to get out of the studio because somebody else needs to get in here, I want to say thanks to everybody. Thank you for um, the reviews at iTunes. Thank you for the word of mouth. Thank you for all the stuff on Twitter, at Jonah Remnant. Um, and if the guys from the frickin... No, don't say it. Don't just make them mad. Okay. It would just be nice if the um, extraneous, irrelevant conversations could get out of the remnant podcast feed i would appreciate it um not that they aren't edifying and illuminating but they aren't necessarily um uh, conducive to the things i needed to do but that's neither here nor there um and that's all i got so i'll see you next time podcast
no, no, no. I don't think so. Uh, maybe a little resignation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little, maybe a hint, a soup of self-pity. That's right. <laughs> um, well, there's the episode title. Yeah, there you no, go. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, and uh, I guess we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Are you? I'm ready. Um, you're recording? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.